I'm going to record. Levels are up. All right, and here we go. On three, two, one. We are speaking with the one and only uh, Steve Whitman, of course, of the band Kicks. And as we say here in Montreal, uh, bonjour, Steve. How are you? Bonjour. I'm yeah. well, thank you. When was by, by the way? When was the last time that Kicks got up to Canada or up to up to Montreal? It's been a while. It's been too long. Um, we had a bad experience at the border, <laughs> <laughs> like a lot of American like bands. A lot of bands. Yeah, I mean, uh, we you know three in the morning we got drug out of the bus and just freezing ass cold and these cops were assholes and and we thought and Toronto was the only was the only place we played because it was the only place we were getting any kind of airplay so we just didn't know if it was worth it to go to Toronto to play a, a tiny little club and get harassed like that so and we've never been invited back anyway well we'll, we'll get you back up here uh, at some point but let's talk about Midnight Dynamite Relit so 35 years since the album came out it is the one that's just before Blow My Fuse, which blew up the band, uh, actually, literally, you, you know. Right. Talk to me about how this one was important in the formation of the band and the movie, because you get to Blow My Fuse and suddenly, whoa, big single, big interest. Uh, talk to me about sort of this one, the, the before one. What did that do for the band and its confidence? Midnight Dynamite, we were coming off what we thought was a dud album for our band, the record company and producers and management tried to turn us into a pop band, a radio-friendly band on the, on the album Cool Kids. And we weren't really happy with that record, but we were coerced by everybody to say, hey, you don't know what the hell you're doing. Listen to us if you want to make it in this business. So we did. And we weren't, you know, we come off that record going, this is a limp piece of shit. And we're sorry we had to make this to our fans. Luckily, our fans accepted it because um, they're good, loyal people. And we knew going into making Midnight Dynamite that we did not want that kind of interference in our music again. And there were some really good songs that were written. We were lucky enough to get Bo Hill involved. Bo was, you know, coming off the success of all the Rat albums. We had good management. We had a good producer. We had we had a good album. We thought this is the one. You had a great songwriter too, and Bob Halligan Jr. Exactly, Bob Halligan, Kip Winger chipped in with 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 a tune. Uh, and Donnie wrote some great songs for that record. And, you know, we, we thought we had it in the bag. And the record company released Cold Shower, did mildly awful. <laughs> and that was it. Record company dropped the ball after that record. And we were pissed. We thought, no way in hell are we letting this record die like this. So we were fortunate enough to have been working the East Coast, Boston to Florida. We could play any club and sell it out and make good money. So after the record company gave up, we started playing our asses off on the East Coast. We saved all of our bar money, and we started doing our own tour support. We went to Chicago and Cleveland and Detroit, Milwaukee, Texas. Then we go back home. We get another another lump of money. Then we go out to L.A. And um, it was through our relentless pursuit of getting people to hear this record that we feel set up to blow my few success. Had we not done that, people still wouldn't have given a shit. And the record label recognized how hard we worked to promote that record on our own. And we even made our own video. We, we did our video for a Midnight Dynamite. So I think they respected our integrity and our hard work. And they finally pushed the magic button on Blow My Fuse. Yeah, they, they really did. So let me just quickly talk you, bring you to, to 2020 real quick. And then we'll go back to Midnight Dynamite. But you talk about touring and, and you did it by yourself. Now you headline the M3 Festival 
and I'm pretty sure every year. Have you missed one? I don't think so. Um, I think when it first started, it was just one night, and we were on it, but we, we didn't headline. But and they added the Friday night to the to the uh, festival, and they called it. Uh, you know, it was it was our show. It was it was a way to get all of our local fans, and it's the only, it's the only venue that large that we headline in the in the country. We don't kid ourselves. It's it's our fans that 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 allow us to do that, and the promoter knows that, and the fans just love seeing us on that giant stage headlining a show. So let me just ask you, because I'm friends with Eric Baker, who who runs that. How important uh-huh. is that festival to what you do, just getting you out there and, and having your name on the same marquees as the White Snakes and the, the, other, the Rats and the other bands that, that, that grace those stages? Yeah, fortunately, we've been able to, to do a lot of festivals. And since like 2008, we started after we decided to stop just doing local shows in our, in our little comfort zone. We had an agent come in and talk to us and beg me to give him the opportunity to, to book this band. And I thought he was out of his mind. I thought there's no way in hell outside of our little Pennsylvania, Virginia, West Virginia, Maryland area. Nobody gave a shit. And and he proved me wrong. He, he booked us at, at Rocklahoma. And that that's a pretty big deal. So we got in front of 20,000 people and they went ape shit. And we were like, whoa, it opened my eyes and it opened all of our eyes. So um, each year it just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger and more shows, more festivals. And, you know, M3 is the most special one to us because it's it's in our backyard. Um, it's it's our crowd. So it, it's wonderful. And the other festivals, you know, we're a part of it. We might go on at five in the afternoon and the headliner goes on at 11. So we're, we're the peons, but we're still damn glad to be there. Yeah. And this one, it's so incredibly well run. And and before I get back to the whole history of the band, my co-host on the show is Alan Niven, who, of course, used to manage Guns N' Roses. Right. I tell that story often about Alan Niven. Right. And, and the story, you know, comes up a lot about how something about the record company and you guys. And he said, you have to make a video. And yet it seems to be playing broken telephone because it seems to be told a, a different way almost every time. What's sort of your version of that story and Alan's importance in the band's history? Alan was a huge part of the success of of uh, Blow My Fuse because we were out on the road. We were doing really well on MTV with Cold Blood and we were out on the road with Great White and Tesla. It was a, the double header tour and we were the opening act. And Alan Niven happened to be on uh, at a show one night and we did Don't Close Your Eyes. And we come off stage and he stopped us and he said, what was that ballad you guys played? And we told him, he said, why is that not a single? We said, ask Doug Morris at Atlantic Records because we have no idea. So he did. He called Doug Morris and said, you're, you're sitting on a, on a hit single. You got to release this. Next week, we're up in New York shooting a video for Don't Close Your Eyes. And the rest is history. But if it wasn't for Alan, I don't think it ever would have got released. So let me just ask you this. Why do you think the record company didn't notice? Where, was it just that kicks wasn't important enough to them and they said, ah, we're not going to spend the money? Did, did, did the people just not have the proper ears? Why, why did they not go in? Why did it need Alan? We've been scratching our asses for years about that question. We don't know. We don't know if we did something to piss them off or, or I, we never figured out. We just know that we always sold enough records from our base, our, our base fans, that they always made money. We never made a cent, but they always made money. So uh, why they didn't push that magic button until Blow My Fuse, I don't know. They did. They went big budget videos for Cold Blood and I believe Get It While It's Hot. And then, then uh, we thought it was done. 
You know, we were out on the road. We were lucky enough to actually be out with Rat and be out with a great white and Tesla. But until Don't Close Your Eyes, the album was just sitting at, at gold. And when Don't Close Your Eyes came out, it went to platinum. Yeah, and I'm trying to think from the from the Canadian perspective. For in order for an American band to get on TV, there had to be some heat behind it because of all the Canadian content rules. I don't think I ever saw the Cold Blood or the other one. I think it really was Blow My Fuse and the and and the uh, the ballad that that got you into my. It was Blow My Fuse was the second single. I'm, you're right. It was Cold Blood was first, and then yeah. uh, Blow My Fuse. Yeah. So um, I'll, I'll ask you a couple of questions on Blow My Fuse, and then we'll get back to Midnight Dynamite. Uh, it is produced in part by Tom Warman, who, of course, yep. worked with Cheap Trick and all these other guys. When you listen to Dee Snyder talk about Stay Hungry, when you listen to Nikki Six talk about the uh, the Motley Crue stuff, when you listen to Cheap Trick here about, you know, uh, In Color, they all go, oh, Tom, the, he was the label guy, he was imposed on. And yet their most successful albums are Tom. And I would argue probably that Kicks Blow My Fuse is your most successful. Yeah. So how do you look at Tom? I mean, yes, he was the label guy, but... He made hits, right? Tom knew how to pick acts that were ready to, to, to break open. He, he knew good music. He was an A&R guy. So he knew good music when he heard it. And when we were shopping for a producer, um, he listened to our demo and thought that, that we had something here. Um, Tom is not the most hands-on producer we ever had. I mean, in the studio, he's there. But he's also surrounded by really quality people that he trusts. So they do the bulk of the work, but Tom just has a great ear and knows when something is good. So um, getting him involved was essential to to blow my fuse. Yeah, it, it really is, and I and I think he crafts uh, great records. Now uh, back to Midnight Dynamite. Uh, Thirty five years here. I'm just going to go over to the track listing. You've added some uh, early versions, some early album versions, some demo versions. Yeah. Talk to me uh, in terms of what can fans expect from this package? It, it came out last week. Um, how is it redone? Why, why, if I'm a fan, do I want to fork out the 20 bucks or whatever to get the new version? Sell it to me for a second. Good question. Um, the whole concept came because we were in Houston playing a show, and Bo Hill lives in Austin. So Bo decided to come out and see a show and, and say hi and hang out for a bit. And we were sitting around after the show, and he almost jokingly said, you know, I'd like to, I'd like to remix uh, Midnight Dynamite. And we just kind of all sat back and laughed. And he said, no, I'm serious. He said, I think I can, I can, I can beat what I did the first time. Technology's better. Um, the, the way that we mixed back then, it was, it was muddied up with so much echoes and reverbs and all the effects and everything. He said, I'd like to have another crack at that. And Mark Shanker got all the material for him, got all the, all the, the tapes and everything. And, put everything to digital and sent it to him and Bo was off. He just, he just wanted to do it. We didn't know where it was going to go. And Bo was so good. I mean, he's, he's to me, he's the best producer we ever had. I loved working with him on midnight dynamite and getting him involved on this one uh, and on blow my fuse. He, he remixed uh, the, the reblown. So he was, he was ready to, he was ready to just stay involved. We've been great friends over the years, and, and I think he just wanted to do something good for the band, thinking it would help us out. And um, it just sounds incredible. Everything is just so cleaner. My voice is way more out front than it was on the original. Ronnie got to go out to go in and, and play some solos in a different way that he, he wasn't really allowed to do on the original recording. Mike Slamer came in and played some stuff that Ronnie and Brian weren't real happy about, but 
we were running out of time and budget, so we had to get these things done. So Ronnie got to go in and do his thing. Jimmy was out. He was he had like a um, a, um, a bulging disc in his neck, so he missed the last two songs that we were doing, "Lie Like a Rug" and "Sex." So Jimmy got to go into the studio and lay down his drums for what Bo got to mix. So there, there's some new stuff on there, and to me, it just sounds incredible. Oh wow! Well, it listen. I've, they they sent me a copy of it, and it it sounds like it's, it's like a punch in the face. I mean, it's, yeah. it's just it's huge. Yeah. Uh, so okay, so so you actually had some recut parts, I guess, that were done like in the last year, kind of thing. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. So all right. See that I wasn't aware of. So let me ask you about that then. Nobody would know that unless I told you. Right. So so let me ask you about that because there is that school of thought that you don't tinker with an original because it has its mystique and it has its moment and it has its whatever. Um, were you hesitant at all or was it like, no, this needs to be fixed? So like, because now, now essentially we have two Midnight Dynamites. We have two different albums. Yeah. Sort of. Yeah. Um, have you... Have you you know, stolen from the Holy Grail, or have you added to it? Um, good question. I, um, I, I mean, we we tried to add to it. The the one thing that Jim, see, Anton Fig played right. on on the last two tracks. I like a rug and sex, so that's why Jimmy was so adamant about putting his thing on this on this uh, re-release. And same with Ronnie. Um, I don't know. It it, it it was all Mark Shanker's idea. Mark Mark's turned into the catalyst of the band. He's 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 always thinking of ways to keep the band relevant, thinking of ways to keep the keep the band making money. And um, he's a much better interview about this than I am, because he really was was the pioneer of, of getting the ball going, getting hold of all the tapes from the record company. And it started with wanting to uh, to redo the Blow My Fuse project. So he had access to all of it. He got it all to Bo. Bo is excited to do it. And, you know, everybody seems to be really happy with it. Yeah, listen, it sounds great. So, all right, I'm going to ask you the, the, the obvious question. Anton Fig, of course, uh, David Letterman, but he also played on those two Kiss records, you know, uh, um, Unmasked and I was, not I Was Made for Loving Dynasty, without right. telling anybody. Uh, what did he bring in terms of sound? Now, now that on the original, he's there. Um, did you get to meet him? Was he just a guy that they called and you didn't realize? Uh, and Because he's, he's, he's a talented mother, you know. <laughs> he, he's a big deal but he, it was this is uh, before letterman of course so, yeah you know, i didn't know who he was and uh he was friends with bo hill and bo brought him in and he was incredible i mean he sat and listened to the songs and he charted everything out didn't play it ever just listened to it charted everything out went out and just nailed it in one take so he's he's an incredible talent and, and cheap if you can do it in one tape um <laughs> Bo Hill, uh, his name comes up obviously with the rat stuff. But when we right. look back at history, at the history of producers, we often talk about Bob Rezrin and Bob Rock and and Tom Worman and all these other guys. And and sometimes Bo gets left out unfairly. Yeah, uh, what he did on those rat records is amazing, especially yeah. working with the rat guys. Um, talk to me about what he brought to the band. You, you just described him as the best producer you ever worked with. So why? Uh, Bo was more than just a producer, more than an A&R guy, more than just a, an idea man. He was a musician. He played instruments. He sang. He wrote songs. So he understood deconstructing a song and putting it back together. He understood why drums should do this and not that. He under he just had great input, and and most of it shows. I mean, if you listen to the demos and then listen to the record, 
the it, it's hugely different because of Bo's input. Yeah, I love Bo, and and he should be in the conversation with the with the greats. I mean, he he is absolutely. Uh, 2014 Rock Your Face Off, uh, uh, Rock Your Face Off came out. Right. Uh, talk to me about the need to make new music because you do go out and do the festivals. You do M3 like we discussed and the fans are there. The fans are happy. They're buying the t-shirts, everybody. But as a creative force, is there is there a need for you to put stuff out? Probably only for our diehard fans, not not for the the whole country. That whole that whole concept came about. We had released a a live DVD, um, Kicks in Baltimore, and we were with a, a record label then that I won't mention because it was a, it was a bunch of crap that went down with our relationship with them. But they they didn't want to release that or or distribute it unless we would promise them a studio album, a new studio album. So that got kind of got the juices flowing because we at at no point thought about doing a studio album. We just wanted to get this video out and, and you know live off of what we'd already done, and that just made every everybody start thinking. And I had written some stuff, and Mark had written some stuff, and we just started throwing it all into a pile. And Brian, who was really good at picking songs that he felt stayed to the true to Kicks and the Kicks fans, and we brought in um, we brought in I'm gonna forget his name because I'm an idiot. <laughs> oh hell! Who the drummer? No, no, produced it. Ta- Taylor Rhodes. I'm Taylor Rhodes. Yep. Yeah. Taylor got involved, and and he started picking some some songs that he thought would would be worthy of what because he was a uh, he was a co-writer with Donnie and understood the whole concept of of kick songs. So getting him involved really really kicked it up a notch, and that just got everybody wanting to say why not why not put a new, another record out and. It it, it it was liberating for all of us because we were under Donnie's thumb for so long. I mean, Donnie was obviously the, the main songwriter, and he loved it that way. He didn't really like other people trying to come in and write songs or unless it was somebody that he co-wrote with. He didn't like any of the band members to write. Um, whether he didn't think we were any good or he just didn't want to share it or he was just an asshole, uh, I'll never know. But... Um, it, being able to do that record and have all five of us sit in a room with the producer and contribute all at the same time was it just felt like this is what it should have been like you know all those years in kicks but it never was it never was okay so let me ask you that because you made a comment about donnie there uh, in terms of of him writing everything you know when you're singing the songs you want the words to have a meaning to you you want to connect with them you want to it, it enhances the performance was it strange for you then to, to be singing somebody else's song and somebody else's words? I mean, do, do you lose some of that authenticity? No, I don't think so, because I grew up in cover bands, you know, and and doing all those all those other bands music for so many years. Um, I still felt a part of that music, even though I wasn't able to write it. You know, it was still my voice. It was still my my touch on it, my presentation of it. So I still felt there was there was a closeness to it. Yeah. Okay. So, so let me let me go over here then to uh, to funny money. You and I have uh, had a chance to say hello at M three and stuff, but we haven't done an interview since the funny money days. We're we're, yeah. we're going back 15, 16, 17 years since we actually did a phoner. Right. Uh, talk to me about that band. Was it just to to have a project to go play locally and just sort of get out and and keep your chops going? Or did you really want to step away from kicks and go, I'm done with this band. I'm going to go do my own thing. What was sort of the funny money 
raison d'être, as we say, the reason for it all, to be. All of what you just said is, is, is all part of the reason. But the other thing is, because I was never really able to write songs and kicks or being taken seriously as a songwriter, being able to write all my own songs and, and put a band around them and go out and perform it, I never kid myself. I, I knew it wasn't going to launch a new career or get a record deal. Or And the other guys, however, were a little... I don't know, a little naive thinking because they're working with me, uh, we're going to make it now. Everybody's going to get a, you know, we're, we're going to get a record deal. And I knew that would never happen, but I was content just because it was my music. I finally got to go out and play my music in front of, in front of local crowds. And that's all I ever really wanted. So being just a bar level and going out and playing every weekend, I was happier in hell. Yeah, and listen, the, the albums sound great. And the, and the thing is, they, they still sound great today. You you made music that didn't sound 1998 or 2001 or whatever. Uh, do, do you want to revisit that? Do you want to do a Steve Whitman solo record? Do, do you have any creative bent to do something? Funny you should ask. <laughs> because we've just been re-releasing, you know, like Blow My Fuse and now Midnight yep. Dynamite, these campaigns have taken up so much time and effort that there hasn't been much talk about a new Kicks album. And I've been writing for the past three or four years. I've got I've, I've accumulated like 12 or 15 songs, and those guys don't seem to be ready to do anything. And I shared it all with those guys, and there didn't seem to be much interest in, in doing a Kicks album. So I'm in the process of recording a record right now, and I hope to have it out by spring. So, you know, if, for the Kicks fans who want to hear some new music, but it's not going to be Kicks, it will just be Little Old Steve. You know, hopefully, hopefully they'll like it and they'll uh, they'll enjoy it. I'm sure they will. So let me ask you then: when you do a, a kicks record, it has to have a kick sound. I mean, fans yeah. expect "Blow My Fuse" part two and yeah. Cole. When you do your own, do, do you just go completely left field and and give them you know ballads and harps and, and and harmonicas, or do you say no, no, no? I'm a rock singer. Here's a rock album. I'm still a rock singer, but I, I have a lot more liberty. You know, I can I don't have to do that acdc grind like like kicks is known for i can i can slow things down i can uh, be more melodic um i can I, I do it my way i don't i don't think about kicks but where when you're writing for kicks you know there's that vein you have to stay in so that's that's a nice that's a nice liberty to have to not have to worry about that and just write what you feel yeah, and that's a great that's a great place to be, and that you know that's the great thing about being you know thirty forty years into your career. You don't have that AOR guy sitting over you going, "You need, I need a top ten hit." I mean, well, in fact, let me ask you about that. There was obviously a pressure when you're with a record company. They're saying, "We need this, we need that," yeah. and and when when uh, Blow My Fuse breaks up, they go, "Well, we need a part two for the next album." How liberating is it now to be an artist and just be able to go play the shows, do the songs you want? And not have those guys just coming down on you all day long. It's very liberating, and uh, we don't miss that at all. You know, um, I don't know. The the, the Re Atlantic Records was never really hands on with us. They they just kind of left it up to the producers and to the management to uh, to kind of sway us their way. And most of the time, they left us alone. I don't know if they didn't give a shit or if they thought we were doing things right on our own or what, but. They never, other than the second album, they they really left us alone after that. And that and that second album, it it still drives you nuts. I can tell. Um, it does. It does. We had we had a lot of, of good rock and material to record on that record, and we went down there and they made us do all these outside writers pieces of shit, and we hated it. 
and we just grinned and bared it. And then when we would leave, after we thought we'd take those, those shitty songs and rock them out, we would leave the studio and the producer would stick around and he would add keyboards and bring in background singers and, and just turn it into shit. And, and we had to put a smile on our face for a year after that and go out and promote that record. That was yeah, tough. I'm looking at it now. You, you've got Holly Knight writing Burning Love. Now, Holly Knight's she's great. I mean, you know, but yeah, it's, it's different. Uh, she can't write a kick song. Well, well, that, that's it. I mean, she writes great Aerosmith songs and, and, right. and other stuff, but it, it's interesting in that sense. Now, um, we are in these COVID times. I'm just going to ask you this one question. You have gone out and done private events, which yeah. I've seen on Facebook, and, and everything seems perfectly fine in terms of socially distanced and so on. So, so, you know, we're not calling you out or anything. But what's it like in this environment to go out and play and and make sure you don't get sick and, and, and make sure that you have a, a paycheck coming in. And how, how difficult has it been for you to navigate this new reality? It's been hell because we had to, we've canceled or rescheduled probably 35 dates since March. Wow. Since March, we've played a wedding reception. <laughs> we played a cornfield. We played some guy's house <laughs> and we played a drive-in. So it's just, just been super weird. Um, can't wait for it to get back to normal, but I don't, we don't know what that is or, or when. So at this point, everybody's just like, everybody's just waiting, locked down and waiting. And when we've done those shows, we never, we never felt threatened because, you know, the protocols and, and the safety precautions were there for us, but we feared the crowds, you know, because the people go there, you can't drink beer with a mask on. It's just, it's just impossible. So the masks are down. People are getting, you know, a little hammered, getting a little too close, but luckily, it was a time when, when the virus was, was not spreading as bad. and But like now, it's so bad. We would never do a show right now. Yeah. And, and by the way, I'm not I'm not uh, bemoaning that. I just, I, you know, I turn on my Facebook and I see, hey, Kicks Live tonight. And I go, where is this coming yeah. from? And, <laughs> and but it, it looks interesting. And uh, uh, oh, I forgot my last question. But uh, in terms of the future, where does the band go? Do, do you just sort of keep doing what you're doing, playing shows and moving forward? Or at some point you say, all right, we're going to hang up this nail, hang up our hang up our, our skates and, and walk away. Um, until that, until I feel I can't do it anymore, you know, as long as I'm doing it at a high level and the people are entertained and everybody, I mean, everybody really gets along really well in this band. So we really enjoy it. Um, the travel I hate, I'm, I don't miss that at all, but that's part of it. And after uh, almost a year off, I'm sure I won't mind it as much anymore, but we plan to get back out there and hopefully we won't lose too much in this, in this layoff time. So as long as the people keep coming out and we're able to put on a quality show, there's no reason to stop. And I'll finish on this. Are you still doing the teaching gig? Because I, I, I remember you saying that you were teaching vocals back in the day. Yeah. Yeah. So is that I something taught, you... I, I taught for about 25 years. And um, when COVID hit is when I stopped. And I haven't I haven't been back. And after 25 years, I thought, ah, I think it's time to let that go. Uh, not doing it felt pretty good. But when you're in it and you're doing it, you know, week after week after week, it's just part of your routine. But getting a break from it made me realize that I think I've been doing this long enough and I've had enough. So, uh, and I'll finish, I'll, I promise you, I'll finish on this one. Okay. But, but you, 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 when you, when I see you perform at M3, it, it's still there. The, the magic's still there. The voice is still there. Is that part of your teaching where you, you learned how to sing properly and not blow it out? Yes. 
Yeah. And learning all the techniques and practicing them with, with students and sharing it with students. And yeah, just knowing what you're doing. Cause you know, you're not always a hundred percent when you're out there performing. So you got to know how to work around that and having the knowledge that I have through teaching and through research that it got me through a lot of shows when I was not at my best. Yeah. Cause uh, there, there are so many bands where, you, you know, listen, it's like a football player at some point when they hit 50, they're not the same football player when sure. they were 20. And nobody ever bemoans a football player for not being as good as they were. With, but with singers, they're always like, oh, well. Oh. But you have to know how to do it. And, and you yeah. do. Well, the, the, I'm not alone. There are a lot of great singers still out there. Sammy Hagar is still killing it. Mick Jagger is still killing it. Uh, Robin Zander is still killing it. Alice Cooper is still killing it. So I think those who, t- who take care of themselves, who work out, who know, you know how, how to prepare and how to, how to cool down and it's just knowledge and it's it's um it, it it takes a little discipline and you got if you don't have that discipline then you're not going to be able to last yeah absolutely and uh, steve as we say in montreal merci beaucoup it has been 16 or 17 years since we've done one of these formally let's not let's not wait another 15 or 16 please. i agree i agree thank you sir always a pleasure and uh, i thank hope you. to get to see you at m3 eventually <laughs> <laughs> right eventually yeah. let's let's hope it happens if not if not in the spring maybe in the fall but let's just hope it happens in 2021 i'm with you merci thank you sir you're very welcome bye